Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today my guest is author and historian Turtle Bunbury. Turtle has published a number of books, such as the Vanishing Ireland series, Easter Dawn, the 1916 Rising, and The Glorious Madness. Described by the BBC History magazine as a skilled storyteller, Turtle has also produced a wonderful array of podcast series that focus on Irish history and provide the listener with wonderful interviews with locals. I was really looking forward to chatting with Turtle, especially about local history here in Ireland, so I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Hi Turtle, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. You're very welcome, Ken. B- delighted to be here. I've been listening to your podcast for a while, maybe over two years. I had to get you on because I've had a couple of historians on the podcast and they've been really brilliant, as you might have heard. But what I was really wanted to get you on to talk about stuff that really me- means a lot to me and, you know, relates to where I grew up, where I come from. And some of your podcasts really nailed that and it's brilliant just listening to you talking about... And I'm sure overseas and even, you know, all across the country won't know what we're talking about very much. But you do a whole podcast on Corker Park. And like I spent all of my years there, my young years in Corker Park, chasing girls on a Sunday afternoon after playing a round of football. So, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we're going to go through that, I'm sure. But uh, it's been a brilliant, uh, it's been a brilliant memory trip for me. And it's so good because what you're doing is you're capturing a, a historic moment in time. And it's still, you know, you can still see it and it still relates to people nowadays who spend every single day maybe going for a walk or a run in that park. It's just one example. Yeah, that's, well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really very interesting. So Corker, Corker Park, Corker Estate in, in South Dublin near Clondalkin. Um, yeah, I, I, it ended up becoming, I think, a six or six uh, part uh, series. Um, but I just, it was a really good example of when you slow down, uh, you know, the clock and, and look at a, a place, an individual chunk of land in Ireland, do you think, what's gone on in this little place? And my goodness, that it, it's been, you know, really busy since the Bronze Age. Um, and, you know, where you were uh, running around with the ladies uh, was, um, you know, later on, it was it was where they had uh, one of the major gunpowder factories in Ireland in the, in the 18th century. And all sorts of amazing characters who, who you know who live there who are connected to I don't know great literary greats or or the the Titanic or whatever you're always going to find some sort of a connection and Corker is a perfectly good example of a a place that is just jam packed with history. Yeah, it's funny because I I I was born and raised in Ballyfermot, and when I was a kid, when Ballyfermot ended, that was it. After Ballyfermot, you had Cherry Orchard Hospital, which was a kind of a fever hospital that Dublin had you know the the Irish government had built along with a load of other fever hospitals to counteract TB. And mm. after uh, the hospital stopped, you know, the end of the hospital, you just you just hit a rural area. And like Clondalkin was a village in, in the country for me. So sometimes yeah. I often think about it when I'm driving from that area and I'm cutting through across where all Liffey Valley is, all the huge shopping estates are now. And I think to myself, God, I remember when all of this was fields. And my older brothers were coming home with bags of crab apples that my mother didn't know what to do because they'd stolen from the orchards up there. (laughs) So, and the thing is, I can see still semblances of that. Like there's one section there as you come around from Cherry Orchard Hospital 
to turn either left for the big Liffey Valley Shopping Centre or go on into Parmestown. There's a little kind of a road there just where two bungalows sit. And I know that that was the original part of the road and it always keeps me in touch with the past. And this is kind of what you're looking for, isn't it, when you're doing something like that? Yeah, I think so. It is those little telltale signs that, you know, in, in our increasingly urban world, um, it is amazing when you find these little chunks, you get them in, I mean, in a Kilkenny is probably a, a, a very you know easy example, but it has uh, little chunks of the original stone wall of Kilkenny that suddenly yeah. turn up every now and then where, you know, and, and it's the same in most towns in Ireland. So, yes, absolutely. Those are the little glimpses of the past that keep us connected. Yeah, it's wonderful. I wanted to know, though, let's go back to the very start with you. What got you interested in history and what got you interested in trying to find, it's particularly from an Irish and a rural Irish uh, background. So what, where did all that start for you? Well, I, I grew up in a historic house for starters. So the house the house had been around, built in the 19th century, but my my family had been living there for 300 years. So I had that legacy was there in the house, you know, the pictures, letters, you know, all, all the sort of bits and bobs that they picked up along the way. So I was always trying to figure out in fact, the paintings were scary. So you had uh, scare, scary, you know, those ones that eyeball you wherever you go, portraits. So I needed to figure out who who some of these guys were to get on first name terms with them. So they became less scary, which I did. Um, so, you know, that, that was in, initial. But then I think, you know what, it's down to uh, a large extent to how inspirational your teachers are when you're studying history. We've all got good teachers and bad teachers of history. I was very lucky. I had a, a, a few in a row who were brilliant. Um, and I, um, yeah, so they really instilled in me a love for it. I didn't think I would ever make a career out of it, mind you. I just thought, you know, really interesting. And I loved reading historical fiction sagas, whether it was, you know, Wilbur Smith or, or whether it was uh, stuff set in Ireland or whatever. And, and, and epic movies too. But anyway, eventually, one way or the other, I ended up studying history uh, at, uh, at the university at Trinity in Dublin. Um, having had a, a couple of years shot at law before that, I did two years of law and just kept on falling asleep. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And then next thing I know, I was studying Ireland in the age of the Vikings. I'm like, yes, I found my place. You know, do you still do you focus on a particular era or are you kind of always looking for the next big thing across the history of Ireland? Is there anywhere you draw the line, in other words? No, nowhere I draw the line. And it's across the history, absolutely across the history. I am as fascinated by what was going on in the Neolithic or Megalithic age, you know, from way back as I am in in terms of, you know, much more recent events in the 20th, 20th century. Anyway, uh, no, I th and I also I think an enormous amount of it is is connected. Um, at the moment, I'm doing quite a lot of work using uh, two brilliant websites, townlands.ie which tells the history of 61,000 townlands in Ireland, right? up into those areas. And each of those townlands obviously has a name. And when you look at the name of those, sometimes it's going to give you a clue about what's going on, whether it's called the church field or, you know, or whatever. You're going to get a, a, an insight onto that. So we are, I don't know, rebuilding our understanding of the past uh, townland by townland. But that, again, you know, when you're looking at that, that that's going to cover everything from the ancient Bronze Age time, again, right through to you know, 18th, 19th century anyway. And when you talk about, say, ancient Irish history, it's kind of not as documented, isn't it, as other parts of Europe in particular, isn't it? It's, you know, you, you can get a lot of stuff, say, post, you know, St. Patrick, and then you kind of get a lot of information on the Vikings and so on and how that and eventually falling into the Normans. But prior to it, it's hard, isn't it, to try and dig it up even though there's a lot of it there. 
there is a lot of uh, stone evidence, uh, you know, the shapes that they left behind to completely confuse us with, uh, you know, th these these brilliant uh, alignments that, you know, map out with the solstices and the skies above and the stars, amazing stuff. But in terms of paperwork, no, there's nothing. You know, the Romans uh, wrote a few lines about, um, you know, their relationship with Ireland or Hibernia, as it was for some of them. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't really get very much at all until the monks start, you know, penning stuff down. Uh, and even then, you know, they're quite often writing, you know, several hundred years after the events took place. So you've got to ask yourself, OK, I, I understand, you know, the, the word of mouth going from generation to generation. Um, but, you know, you have to question you know, <laughs> how much of that is truth or, or wishful thinking or, or, you know, exaggeration or what. Um, so, yeah, it is funny. That's, that's one of the challenges, trying to uh, get credible information from those from that era. At the moment, it seems to be kind of sexy that a lot of historians are revisiting the Bronze Age and in particular the Bronze Age collapse. And they're looking at how it, you know, the origins of it, what were the reasons behind it? And, you know, it's focused centrally, you know, mostly around the Eastern Mediterranean. And, you know, it looks at the Mycenae and uh, the Egyptians, the Hittite Empire and all of those things. But there, I have heard some podcasts where they did touch on the effect of the Bronze Age collapse in Northern Europe, because as it, uh, Northern Europe was supplying a lot of the raw materials, I think Cornwall was doing the tin. So there was a lot of traffic, you know, for its time going there. And I'm wondering, um, I know I'm just picking your brains on something here, but do you think that there is a lot of unknown history about Ireland during the Bronze Age and if it was affected by something like, say, the Bronze Age collapse? Um, yeah, I, I, it's a complete guessing game because we literally know so little. But, you know, you're dead right. You know, they were coming in, in, the, in that time frame to Ireland looking for resources, looking for copper and, and, and bronze. Um, and yeah, we, we have those mines like in, in, in the Ross mines in, in Kerry, for example. Um, so yeah, do people eventually down tools because the economy collapses? I'm not so sure. I mean, Ireland, um, you know, it had all its mini kingdoms and I think it, uh, there was always, you know, a certain amount of wealth in those kingdoms looking for, you know, so internally, I think we had quite a lot of wealth and also th I think it's really fascinating how much Ireland was integrated with the UK as it is now in those times, right? So the, for example, Northumbria in England, you know, the kings of Northumbria were very much interconnected with Ireland in the sixth century, the time of St. Patrick and, and that sort of era, uh, sending their sons to be educated in, in the Irish monastic schools and so on. Same with kings in Europe, you know, you, you get kings and or royal families, aristocratic families in, in, in France uh, and, and Germany, present day France and Germany, that would have been sending their children back to Ireland for education. Okay, because Ireland, maybe some of our listeners are not aware, Ireland at that time during the 6th to 8th century was would have been the centre of excellence, wouldn't it, for learning? They were really, they had a lot of amazing monastic schools like Clonard near the Boyne or Clon McNoise is, a, you know, another famous one. But there was, I think, God, six or seven of them, really, maybe more. And sometimes when you read the figures, they say that they had, you know, 3,000 students, all boys, and they're basically boarding schools, prototype universities, um, you know, that were teaching people, you know, quite a lot of theology and divinity, but they also sort of practical skills and calligraphy and, and, and metalwork and stuff like that. So, you know, centres of excellence, yes. Yeah, and it, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was that in terms of how much is out there for us to discover, 
Have we been lucky in some ways in that we live on the fringe of Europe, that the preservation of our history, in other words, you know, looking, say, for example, the big one is Newgrange, you know, and that, that'd be a great example. But we've also found so much stuff in bogs and so on, as you know. And mm. was there a particular reason for this, that we were able to preserve all of that history so well? Well, I mean, the bogs is, is, is a brilliant one. But, um, well, the other thing is that we, unlike far too many people on this planet, have not been bombed to smithereens, you know, that's the thing, you know, uh, you know, so much of Europe has, has really, really suffered bombs and bombs and bombs and, you know, the wars particularly. Uh, so in Ireland, our resources weren't really blown up. Yeah, we, we lost the four courts, although they've done an amazing job. <laughs> of getting back a, a That's an entirely amount. different podcast. We could do an old, old episode on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is. And, and you, you, you know, you get episodes or, or again, you know, the same same time frame. You, you lost what 300 big houses went up during the Civil War and the War of Independence. So you probably lost whatever was contained in them and so on. We have lost chunks along the way, right back to the to the Reformation when the uh, when the the Protestant Reformation, when uh, a lot of work uh, that would have been in the Catholic uh, churches before they were pulled down and destroyed. Where did all that go? A lot of that went, you know, disappeared. So we have lost stuff, but at the end of the day, we have a whole lot more than um, many other people. We're very very lucky on that front. And last question on this timeline: Do you think there's another Newgrange out there somewhere? Because, I mean, look, they've been extremely successful in Orkney and Shetland, haven't they? I mean, they've found incredible Neolithic sites over there in the last 10 years or so. So do you think that being such a large island, there must be something out there, is there, that we haven't discovered that could be as big? It's hugely exciting to imagine. And they have, you know, they made, um, you know, even since when it was 2018 with that incredible uh, heat wave in the summer where drones were going left, right and center going, oh, find another one, you know, know, all sorts of things, log boats in the Boyne or I don't know what what era that was from. But, you know, certainly again up at Newgrange, they, they found a whole, you know, new complex practically. So I would no. I, I'm full of hope that we're going to find much more. I, I think it was I was listening to um, an Egyptologist talking about, um, you know, how much more is lies hidden under the sands in you know Africa, in North Africa, and unbelievably, she said that uh, she she said that she thought that something like eighty percent of the stuff has yet to be discovered. Wow. Okay. So, so that's that's very encouraging. <laughs> well, it is because it's exciting, you know. To I mean, we're, yeah, you never know what's what's coming up next. Uh, and leader or li- what is it? Leader, lighter. I never know how to how to say the word, but that's you know, using um, light and lasers uh, and so forth. That has created you know the most mind blowing discoveries that they've been able to do with that. In the Amazon, for instance, where they found that beneath the Amazon rainforest, they have you know villages spread over an area the size of Scotland that were all interconnected. You know. So we're learning all the time. Yeah, I suppose we could probably talk a little bit about technology. I mean, you know, when it comes to technology, does it help you when you're doing research? Or would you still, if you're starting from scratch on a project, would you still rely on the old trusted method first? No, I'm a 100% technology uh, based, uh, as in, I well, first of all, I use the internet to get started uh, and to, to do all my research. But also, what is incredible is that um, the amount of information, obviously the amount of information available these days is staggering. But from a historical researcher's point of view, you get something like these news archives, the British News Archive, the Irish News Archive. Uh, the British News Archive has a lot of Irish stuff on it. Uh, they, they have millions and millions of pages from all these papers running back to the 18th century. And, you know, you can key in. I'm just looking for Ken Sweeney. 
And it will look and report back and say, we've got 26 references to Ken Sweeney. Which one are you interested in? And that took you 30 seconds. You know, to have gone through those millions of pages looking for Ken Sweeney would never have happened. It's just impossible, you know, in in, in a library or, or, you know, however. So that means that we all, us historians, are getting a, a huge opportunity to revise and revamp how, you know, how we interpret the past, because we have so many more clues. It's like, you know, you've, you've been building a jigsaw for, for years and centuries, and now somebody's just piled <laughs> a couple of million new pieces on, but they've got order. You can find out, you, you, you know, there's a sort of method to them. They're not just completely random. You can work with them. I suppose you could probably say then that we're kind of living in a golden age, aren't we, of archaeology and history being recorded. Because when you look back, say, at the 15th or 16th century in Europe, I mean, there wouldn't have been as much focus, say, for example, on the history of the ancient Greeks or the history of Neolithic Ireland or, you know, who were the original Spaniards. So nowadays we seem to be searching everywhere across every timeline for the next big story, whatever it may be. So would you say this is a golden age for archives and recording of history? Yeah, I mean, it has to be. It has to be a golden age. I can't imagine, I I can't think of a better time to become a historian. As I say, I didn't mean to become a historian. I was just pretty hopeless at nearly everything else I told I had to. Um, And uh, and so then, yeah, then... I I think I'm I've lucked out. I think any any historian in the, working in the modern day would would agree that it's a really exciting, um, and you know yes, there's something you asked about you know the old traditional means and and it is lovely to go into a library and to look at those original things and to smell the original manuscript, um, to see the original handwriting and see what sort of you know um, you know whether you can learn things from that. That's that's that is very important and it's brilliant that people do that. I'm too. Uh, I, I I live remotely in the Irish countryside, and I'm uh, I, either too idle or, or something to do <laughs> to do that. Um, so that's why technology uh, appeals to me, being able to do it through you know other other mediums, um, and also you know the you know a bit like your your own podcast series. You know, we also have the ability to be able to listen. So if if I'm you know doing, I, I was doing something about this extraordinary legend about a, a fella from Valencia Island and Kerry who allegedly executed John the Baptist uh, and I saw this sort of throwaway remark um, I went what and uh, then I um, you know went in and looked it up as podcasts and sure enough there was a podcast about Mogua executing John the Baptist so I drove off to Carlo Town and by the time I got back again I'd listened to the lovely podcast about it you know we have the ability to access information you know it's, it's amazing but on the other side, is it kind of downplaying the importance of, you know, a historian? Can anybody be a historian nowadays if they do a 15 part podcast on something? How do you feel? Where do you do you still think you definitely need to, to go back and get us, you know, some kind of qualification or do an academic study? Um, I think that's pretty important. I actually at the end of the day, it is down to the credibility, right? And you have to be able to state where you got your fact from, where you got your source, you know, what your source material is. Um, you have to c- confess when you're speculating, you know, you know, you have to, um, you know, in a way, when you're studying a, hist- a historian, sorry, a history, you should know who the historian is, like what's their angle? Do they have an angle? We all probably have a bit of an angle somewhere like that. So you kind of, you know, bear that in mind. Um, but yeah, I think it's re- it's really it's just about being credible. Like that's the one thing I'm really determined to try and do is 
because it's awful if you get something wrong. Of course, we get it wrong. You know, you can get it wrong every now and then. Um, and also, you know, new facts come to light all the time, which suddenly mean that your whole argument might collapse behind yeah, you. Yeah. And of course, you have to worry, of course, with the internet is that you get all sorts of, you know, cowboys coming up with these crazy ideas. And, you know, the way they're able to present them, they present them very flashy. They give a lot of, uh, you know, you go onto YouTube, you see a lot of fancy videos. And, you know, they're, sometimes they're just spouting complete rubbish. But people don't, you know, they, they tend to read the headlines and everything nowadays a lot more. And it's I think it's it's very important that if you are going to check up on stuff like that, like you say, is that you read more than what you hear in that 10 minute YouTube video. Because a lot of the time these people are talking nonsense. It must be hard for you as a, you know, a certified, say, historian to have come across something and see it all presented very flashy and go, that's a load of rubbish. Well, look, that is it. I mean, it is context, and you have to give people a bit of uh, a bit of benefit. I mean, you know, it, it happens on in in Hollywood, right? You know, we have it on Netflix series or whatever that you're going to see things. But you know, we're historians. We're, we're it's only ever guesswork, you know, to an extent. Um, but uh, yes, it can be. You know, it can be politicized and and used for you know dark agendas if you're not very careful. Um, so no, I, I don't. I don't approve of that at all. But I do like it when, for example, I watched a TV show not long ago called The Medici's on Netflix, which was you know perfectly, uh, you know, decent fare. But the, afterwards, I suddenly realised I was so interested that I went off and got a book about the Medici's to read it. Um, and you know, I think that's that's good. That's when when uh, you know when TV makes people go off and you know read more on the subject. That's good. Of course, I mean Dan Brown's you know, trilogy of, you know, if anything, it made people pick up books elsewhere, didn't it? And I always said that was a good thing of that, the Da Vinci Code yeah. and that kind of stuff. You know, you had people looking, you know, locally. Oh, no, they were going around looking for all these people going around, you know, the, uh, the churches that were named in the thing, digging holes out walls. And all. But, you know, that's, that, that went down a bit, a bit, that went down fairly quickly afterwards. But still, a lot of people did kind of, you know, pick up other books. Yeah, exactly. That's what happens. You get, you know, you get a, you get a great interest in that. It's probably, I'm sure Dan Brown will be looking for John the Baptist and his executioner on Valencia <laughs> Island before long as well. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, when, yeah. Do you know when you're watching, say, interpretations, and I did ask, a, you know, a few historians, this is before on the podcast, when you're watching interpretations, say the way you're just talking about there on Netflix, does it annoy you when they get it hor horrifically wrong? Or do you just go, nah, it's okay, just let it go. It's for dramatic effect. I think it's okay generally, you know, sometimes it's, I'm sure I've been uh, annoyed in the past, but I don't, I don't storm out of a cinema going, no, nah, it was never <laughs> like that. Um, because no, I think, you know, that's what it is. It is uh, being creative, you know, using, using mm. the stories from the past. And, you know, and that's the thing. History as a canvas is absolutely incredible to draw upon for movies and, and so on. And we have, I don't know what percentage of films on, uh, you know, on, for example, Netflix or are, are based on history, but I mean, you know, it's enormous percentage, right? Yeah. Because it's all about everything that's ever happened before, uh, starring all the people who've ever lived before. So we have a huge thing to, you know, to work with there. Um, but yes, in terms of people, I mean, Braveheart was quite a good example, going back in time for older listeners, because I think we're nearly 30 year anniversary of Braveheart. <laughs> wow. I heard the other day, um, slightly alarming. Um, but you know that when um, the, the the great um, well, without spoiling anything, but when William Wallace um, would appear to have got the good princess with child um, at the very the, at the very end of the film, um, you know she was she was like three when he was executed. So <laughs> they did sort of make that one up a bit. Yeah, and they, they they've done a few versions of the kind of uh, 
Battle of Bannockburn. I've seen them on Netflix being done. And they seem, mm. like, for dramatic effect, they are very good. I mean, there's a nice, lavish production on it. And they do get the, int- the you know, the things that I enjoy, you know, when they raise the level to the Lord of the Rings level where, you know, their costumes and, and their special effects and their, you know, whether they use the bridles, the correct bridles on the horses, they seem to care a lot about that. So it's good to see when you see that kind of investment in it, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. That's, you know, that's kind of back to that credibility word I said earlier because... Mm. For them, for the producers, it must be so annoying when somebody says, ah, they didn't have a bridle like that. (laughs) It's a downer. Um, But, uh, you know, if you don't, you know, if you can satisfy that condition, then you've got that person on side. Even if there's only 10 people in the world who are going to know, they're going to go, oh, they got the right bridle. Yeah. (laughs) It's only a few, but they're probably the loudest most of the time. They are, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've had some kind of, it's funny as well, because when you look at some films, we've had some movies that where you maybe visited them for the first time and you kind of went, oh God, this is awful. And then you go back to them and you kind of go, oh, maybe it's not too bad. And I kind of felt that way about Alexander with Colin Farrell. You know, when I first saw it, I just went, oh, this is, I was laughing to be honest, at points, you know. But then I watched it again and I kind of had a bit bit of a different perspective on it. I was more interested in okay. the actual life of Alexander because I've read a couple of books on him. Plutarch, I've read on that one, The, the Age of Alexander. And, yeah. you know, I thought they got a lot right in that in that. Um, that's you know, true. Well, that's dangerous. They were in, in that. I think no, I haven't seen it, so forgive me. Um, but I think uh, they were too accurate, weren't they? And some um, that's cases, and they couldn't. They said, "Oh, it wouldn't have been like that." And he yeah. didn't have hair like that. Colin they messed Farrell up with the accents as well because they they employed a lot of Irish accents because they want because rightly so. And I did speak to a couple of historians who are specialists in that area. They said that the Macedonians were kind of a northern tribe of Greeks, so they were a little bit rougher around the edge. So they gave right. them a kind of a Celtic accent, which in turn, of course, naturally translates through the Hollywood filter of the Irish accent. So they had Irish accents in And I think what happened was a lot of people sat down in the cinema and went, what's going on here? Immediately thinking it was some kind of parody. But obviously, as you said, it was probably being too accurate. Like the the Hobbits in Lord of the Rings when they... Yeah, they've done that recently. Yeah, they again. And I think this is... But nowadays, I think it's wrong to do because people take offence very easy to it. You know, they're saying, oh, what are you trying to say? The Hobbits, you know, the Irish, what are we, you know, downtrodden or something? (laughs) So yeah, yeah. But then again, people take offence of everything. And it is very hard, isn't it, to do a historical movie movie nowadays because you just have so many people who are who have such a voice going that's not correct yeah you do and then the, you know there are so many I mean, that's the thing about history you know we can it is also uh well it's kind of controversial because a lot of a lot of horrible horrible thing it is i mean it's basically a history of horrible things really isn't it but what you've got to bear in mind is that it, it tends to be only the horrible things that get written down um, an enormous amount happens that isn't horrible and that peaceful and, and nice and people have lived quite reasonably calm, decent lives and so forth. And, but it's it's not interesting enough for historians to have written it down. Uh, that doesn't get recorded as much. Uh, have, have, do you know Carcassonne in, in, in France, this wonderful you know, fortress in, on the hill? And I was there not long ago and it was the subject to endless wars all the way through to the sort of 15th century and in the tourist brochure, it said nothing of interest happened here in the 16th and 17th century. <laughs> and I thought, what a lovely time to live there <laughs> when nothing of interest happened in this beautiful fortress. It's like, you know, it, this is a disgrace because nothing of interest happened. It's yeah, like yeah, as if yeah, you were yeah, complaining yeah. and writing, you know. <laughs> I know yeah. But it's, I mean, sure. I suppose you could say a lot about Irish history is kind of like that as well. Because, I mean, when people think of, you know, the, the you know the 800 years of, of, you know, a struggle against the English and then the British. I mean, for a long time, Ireland wasn't kicking the hell out of British every time they seen them. I mean, there was lots of long periods of time where it was relatively calm on this island, wasn't it? Under English and British rule. 
Yeah, I think I mean it is certainly calm. I can't say I would, I, I would approve of the balance of of society no. entirely. <laughs> But um, but yes, you did, and you had you know you had long eras of prosperity, and actually quite an interesting run of prosperity in the eighteen nineties uh, and uh, up until the First World War. Things seemed to be on the up uh, in Ireland uh, at that time, and then of course the First World War flipped everything around, uh, and things maybe didn't seem like you're there on the up if you were involved in the strike and lockout in Dublin. I know that, but but you know generally Ireland seemed to be on an upward trajectory at that time. So you know, interesting. Yeah, I suppose we can stick with Irish history for a few moments if you don't mind. I want to talk to you about rural history because rural history, I'm based here in South Kildare, so it's everywhere, Turtle. Everywhere you go, you know, whether you step in, go down to Moon, which is just a small village down here, has a massive Celtic cross there. You know, you go across east and you're in Killikey Castle and all these kind of places. And then if you drive for an hour, you're in Kilkenny. So I'm wondering, um, rural history, is it important to you? Is it something that you love doing? Does, does that kind of get your senses going when you find some local story and want to maybe write about it or, or do a podcast on it? Yes, very much. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a lot of work with Waterways Ireland um, podcast series as well. Um, but it is so interesting to look at Ireland in terms of the rivers that are coming through it and following the rivers. So uh, lately, I've been following the River Barrow. You mentioned uh, Kilkay Castle. Um, is uh, a little bit off the barrow, but there are a whole clatter of castles from Carlow, Athai, up to Monastreven and Kildangan and so forth. These sort of castles along the, the the river being, the river barrow having been a frontier of the pale back in the day. So I, um, yes, 100%, I, I look at the local history. I, I just find it so intriguing and luckily not just my local history i'm, I'm uh, as fast as to go anywhere it's just that the devil is in the detail and you're, you're always going to find these extraordinary little stories and nuggets and drama uh in we're, we're back to townlands again really mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's amazing because like i just got to pick you're talking about the um waterways ireland um podcast i'm going to make sure we put all your links to the podcast in the show notes for everybody to uh grab a hold and listen to because there's some great local stories there that i've been living in here for 15 years and i never knew anything about and i walk past some of the points that you reference in the podcast and i'm going to pick on one uh, you did one on the barrow which was an interview with a guy called john o'neill um mm -hmm. maybe you can tell our listeners briefly who john o'neill was because i'm going to put this specifically in in the uh, in the show notes as a really good example of how well you do local history so maybe you could tell everybody just in in advance who john o'neill was John O'Neill, he is, he's at a place called Fennis Court, um, which is on the Barrow, and he was the lock keeper there for 33 years. Um, and yeah, so I had a, I had a lovely chat with him and uh, about him and his, and his aunt Maggie Gorman and her cow. In <laughs> fact, his aunt, his aunt was, a, was a, one of the very few female uh, lock keepers in Ireland. So yeah, really interesting. And of course, there was a strong connection to Guinness, because Guinness was one of the last companies to use the canals and the barrow for navigation and for transport isn't it yeah absolutely so the yeah the guinness um yeah the guinness boats were would have been the you know a really just sort of glorious sight i'd imagine just going backwards and forwards up the barrow, uh with their with their casks um of uh, of stout um and they had to give a little bit of extra uh or, or, or allow for a certain amount of that uh the, of the stout to have been tapped uh, along <laughs> journey by the by the boatman but god love them and they were ingenious in their in their the ways 
in which they actually managed uh, to um, to tap it. They had this hilarious little device that just like managed to ping in and uh, t- just a little bit out. Yes, it's fantastic because, you know, my dad, um, you know, he's originally from Drunkondra. And he, when he, as a child, he was able to tell me that there were some parts of the Grand Canal and the Royal Canal that had, you know, had now been, you know, filled in, particularly the one down by the Coombe. He said there was one down there. And, you know, it's amazing when you think about it, that it's like what we were talking about earlier on and that just local history, there's so much of it in, you know, the square square meters, never mind square miles. So what what we'll do is we'll get it. I'll make sure that they're in the, in the, uh, the podcast links because it's really really good what inspired you to do that podcast was it just something that was approached were you approached or did you have that idea yourself about the waterways uh, no I, I went to them I, I just um i had i have done a bit of work with waterways ireland and i just love the the this medium of podcasts and and can you know you, you you know it inside out as well but it's just really nice because people can listen when they want to listen um and i knew from doing you know from researching the, the waterways i knew quite a lot of people who are involved in you know who live on the lakes or the rivers or work with them and i thought you know these guys would probably quite enjoy it so i kind of recorded it for them with them in mind uh, other people listen then you know great I mean you were bringing back so many memories of me in primary school like I mean you're talking about Cranogs you know which are these kind of island little villages that the Celtic um, people put together and I haven't heard the word Cranog since I was a kid <laughs> you know because it's like something you learn you speak about a lot when you're a kid and then suddenly you went to secondary school and you know you don't even want to know what that word was and it just came I back know. yeah, yeah that, that's it and the, the, when the thing is that uh, again with all the the, the new uh, research that's available, you know, and so on. You suddenly learn, you know, how many Cranogs there are. I think they found two thousand Cranogs. They reckon they've got between Ireland and Northern Ireland now. It's a real part of history that um, you know we've documented quite well. If, if definitely, if I can get it in a working class school, it, it must have been well documented. Um, I know you and I are long past school, but um, there is there is a you know this constant battle. I think which is it's, it's insane to think about it that some schools are thinking of you know devaluing the idea of history and making it part of something else that must be terrible for you if you come across that idea yeah i'm i'm, I'm no enthusiast for that as you can imagine um, i do think there's an enormous amount that they have to learn on the junior cert syllabus for history it's it's pretty intense i mean they learn everything i mean i i say i i say i study everything from the neolithic times to the present well that's fine for me to do it so, but I think it's quite hard going for a 14 or 15 year old to do, which is what they have to do. Um, you know, it's a, it's a lot, but um, no, I mean, history, it's, it's just, first of all, it's a, it's just really exciting and fun and should be an amazing canvas to, you know, to put everything on. And secondly, I don't know. I don't like I, the idea of a world where people just literally don't relate to their past is a bit scary to me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's another thing is that the problem is that everything is so accessible nowadays. So if I could just go online and say, I want to find out about Ku Cullen, you go to a Wikipedia page, you don't trust the source, but you still read it mm. and think it. And then it's easy. And I think this is gelling into that where it's an almost a lazy idiom where people are saying, ah, sure, look, we can always find the information. But, you know, you need to be able to tell the story, don't you? Because there's no story in anything you find in an encyclopedia. And these, whereas you're coming up with the story. I mean, we all knew that the Barrow was a navigable area. We all knew Guinness, you know, barges went along it. But you told the story and that's what's going to happen. It's going to miss that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not that. I, I have positive thoughts about it as well, because I think because it's 
too good to to lose <laughs> um that i think people will go in and and mine it and find the brilliant stories and find amazing new ways of telling them uh whether it's the small small little you know tiktok films or whatever um yes you know going back to your earlier point you know we we are you know there is always going to be a danger that people are putting out you know false stories or or mischievously false stories or darkly false stories um, and you know that's always been the case. You've always had that. People have always had agendas when they're publishing their history, right back to when people were publishing, you know, the first biographies of Saint Patrick. You know, there was a reason behind it. You know, people have agendas. Um, so just so long as people are able to bear in mind what is the agenda, is it one I can work with? Is it a safe one? Uh, you know, uh, I think, yeah, we history is you know, a subject for the future, right? Definitely. And it's funny you say that because I was listening to a podcast um, on the history hit, The Ancients, it's called, and they featured an episode on the Philistines. And, you know, they were talking exactly about that, about how the Bible had an agenda about them. And, they, you know, they made yeah. them out to be these horrific, you know, Viking style marauders. And, you know, that they were kind of, they, they, they were seen as the under, you know, the under souls of, you know, and that the, the righteous Israelites had to fight against them. And, you know, their king was Goliath, who was six foot and 12, you know, whatever that sort of thing. And the history now is beginning to tell that the Philistines were the more advanced technologically, their area. Charming people, charming yeah, Philistines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know, they, they were, they, in fact, they were they were overthrown and removed from society by another, you know, force, and they weren't very active at all in terms of warfare, from what they can gather. So it just uh, shows you definitely its agenda there since day one, isn't there? <laughs> it is, and also you kind of want. It's a bit like you know Vikings. Sometimes we get um, stories back about Vikings being quite civilized and nice, and you know not having horny hats and not going around you know beating everybody to death with their axes. And and I think people are like, oh no, stop! We we need to have Vikings being scary and fierce, and we need them to be like sort of all black football team or something um uh, rugby team um and uh if you if you make them civilized it sort of changes people's perspective but look that's the thing it's much history is inevitably way more nuanced than uh you know than we allow now come here last question i always ask my guests of this and um, what are you listening to reading or watching at the moment oh right okay um well reading i have finally picked up a book called wolf hall by hillary mantle um, which is set in the Tudor age, and it tells the story of Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII. And I think she's ap- she's just a magician. She's absolute magician. I've never uh, read a book quite like it. Uh, she's just so sure-footed with her every single sentence, uh, and it's really funny. You know, she's she's very witty. Is very it witty. historical so fiction or is it a fact-based book? It's historical fiction, but you know, a fictionalized account of this guy Thomas Cromwell, who orchestrated the Reformation, actually, and is generally seen as a villain. But she's taken it from his perspective, and she's just done an amazing job with it. For which uh, Hilary Mantle, who sadly died last year, I think, but was uh, you know received a lot of applause and Booker prizes and so forth. So, yeah, loving that. Uh, what was the other one? The TV the podcast. Uh, TV, I've just finished a series called The Last of Us, which oh, yeah. um, will not give any spoilers, but no. that has been had me had me glued to my feet. That the script is amazingly tight. I loved it. Um, and then podcasts. Um, there is a brilliant fella called Dan Carlin who has a a, a series called Hardcore History, um, but it's it's actually um, he's just brilliant. He did a sort of fourteen hour podcast about the First World War. Uh, and uh, he he just he he did one about the Celtic Holocaust in the time of Julius Caesar. He's great. He's he's really engaging. 
And, uh, you know, just going back to The Last of Us, I think it was really successful because um, unlike the other kind of zombie-based, uh, you know, TV shows and movies, it didn't rely too much on the gore and the horror. I mean, the way it looked at it was everything's already happened. You know, the world's gone to hell. And it was really about family and about, you know, building up a relationship, wasn't it? I mean, it was really well done. It was so heartfelt. The rest was irrelevant in some cases. It was. The zombies were a very small part of it. I, I, I actually probably wouldn't have watched it if it was all about zombies. Um, I sort of hesitantly watched the first episode and then realized I was pretty glued. Um, but as you say, yeah, it's a really interesting um, take on, yeah, how people would relate after such an event took place. Yeah, But with this show, you never gave up on it because you always knew that the focus was on the kid and him. And that's that's I think the success is just there on that. Yeah, and, and a little bit of casting. Yeah, well, cast. yeah. Well, he's he's definitely the man, isn't it? They call him the daddy, apparently, or something like that, don't they? And now, before I let you go, I need you to tell us where's the best place to find you. You have a website, I presume. I do. Turtlebunbury.com is 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 where everything is, and I've got a a historical treasure trove archive of yep. all my stories. I, I whack up there, so. Um, that's that's where you'll find everything. And of course, you can tell everybody out there that once you go there, you can go on because I went down the rabbit hole of Turtle Bunbury, linking from one podcast, from one you know episode, from one uh, website to another. So that's a brilliant. You got me hooked. It's a brilliant website. So fair play to you on that one. Well, listen, it's a pleasure to talk with you, Ken. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to me today. My name is Ken Sweeney. This is the Comfortable Spot, and we will be back with you real soon. So take care, y'all. Bye bye. Thank you.